If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, we are going to finish out the chapter by covering verses 20 and 21 tonight. If you don't have your Bibles with you, you can turn to the back of your order of worship. I know as we've gone through Paul really defending himself, making a lot of arguments, a lot of it has seemed repetitive. Uh, tonight we come to what really seems like he said last Sunday night, are we considering the same thing over and over again? In some sense, we are. Uh, Paul places, though, the, the crown, so to speak, on the top of his argument. And why do we keep restating this over and over again? It's because we need to hear the gospel over and over again. Reconciliation with God, which he's covering here, can only happen the way 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes it. So that we would have zero hope if this was not true. And so tonight we take up a doctrine called imputation, which means really accounting. And here uh, I want to dispose of verse 20 because we're going to focus on 21 tonight. Maybe you've heard it said before, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. The gospel is lost in a statement like that. As if proclaiming the gospel by example is more virtuous than actually proclaiming the very Word of God from the Scripture. As ambassadors of Christ, Paul's talking here, as we're sent out into the world, you are called to use the Word of God. And it's God that makes His appeal through us. And as Paul here begs, and he implores, you can almost hear him almost just weeping for the lost that they would believe this gospel. He does so, he declares it with words. The gospel isn't our action or something that we act out in daily living, or else it would be man centered. Instead, it is the action of Jesus Christ for his people. And He is the very Word of God. And He acted out on the stage perfect obedience and willingness to obey God even unto death. And He gave us the words of salvation. It's rooted in history. A real sacrifice at a real moment. The pinnacle of human history where Jesus was the substitution for sinners. And a godly life uh, living out the gospel as if it's an action that we live out rather than the words could never communicate the incarnation or Jesus' substitution for sinners or the hope of redemption by grace alone through faith. And so here tonight we are told the words of life. And it is a verbal appeal to faith and repentance. Let me pray. Our gracious God, we thank You for what is set before us in Your Word. It's perfect as You are perfect. Lord, we thank You for the immense uh, truth laid before us. How wonderful are the works of Jesus Christ on behalf of us, Lord. I pray that it would enliven our hearts, that it would give us a great joy, and it would give us the relief, Lord, that comes from having a place that we can unburden ourselves of our guilt and our sin and our shame. And we thank You 
in all this that your son is magnified, that it was an acceptable work, and by it you accomplish the reconciliation and redemption of your people. So be with us, Lord, as we turn to this powerful word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, this evening, the sermon's entitled Divine Accounting. Uh, we'll see that uh, in this uh, imputation, in what uh, Paul is describing here, we see Christ's work on our behalf. We're going to ask two questions. What must be taken from us, our first point, and what must be given to us? First, what must be taken from us? Let me ask you a question. Does God love us unconditionally? In one sense, yes. He looks out and He doesn't see any merit in us that would make Him more favorable towards us. There isn't a condition in us to make Him love us. But I want to challenge that thought for a second. In a much stronger sense, when we ask the question, does God love us unconditionally? The answer is no. Paul here implores us to be reconciled to God. And in order to be reconciled to God, he lays out for us the conditions of being restored to a right relationship with him. It's a negative and a positive. It's a debit and it's a credit of divine accounting. For our sake, it says in 21, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He loves based upon these conditions. Christ bears our sin on the cross, and we are given the righteousness of God. This is called double imputation. He imputes our sin. He accounts it to Christ's account. And Christ's righteousness to us. Paul opens up, this is for our sake. This is for our sake that this great transaction took place. This is grace. And we are left without hope if it wasn't true. It is for our sake because the debt is so overwhelming. It's crushing. And you will never be out from underneath it. No matter what you do in this life, you will never be free of the debt. It was for our sake because it was a divine curse that has been on mankind since Adam fell in the garden. Now, there should be a great relief when we hear this. For our sake, God does something for us that we can't do. He doesn't have an expectation that you're going to save yourself, that it's really just grab yourself by the bootstraps and march on up to the pearly gates. You're going to get there. You're going to do it. But it's for our sake that He doesn't qualify our salvation with how well we're doing, the strength of our faith, your actions, for your sake, He has initiated reconciliation. And perhaps the greatest aspect of for our sake is because the wrath of God is going to be poured out on the sinner. And that's not overlooked in this passage. 
an imputation or this divine accounting, we have a great debt and we are told that it has been credited to Christ. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. In this transfer of our debt to Christ, we see that God doesn't overlook sin, that He doesn't just brush it away and say, all right, we can just forget about that and let's start over afresh, right? He deals with it. That way He is both the just and the justifier. And you understand the magnitude of what Paul is describing here. The magnitude of his appeal. Because Paul looks out, he sees the plight of men. He understands, uh, uh, just like he, he found out on that road when, when Christ stopped him, he was going to murder Christians and he stood before, uh, and, and, and thanks be to God, I'm sure he would say Christ didn't strike him dead, but Christ showed him mercy. Why do you persecute me, Paul? He knows uh, as he was drawn up, it says, into the heavens what is coming, and he can't stop thinking about it and thinking about the lost in the world. His pressing desire and his need, uh, or is his seeing the need in the world that they might know Christ and be set free. He's on mission before anyone would find themselves before the great judgment seat. When everything is stripped away, every treasure that we might hold dear, everything that we might have called an accomplishment. And he doesn't want anybody standing there still holding something in their hands for the thing that would follow us is our sin. Our sin. And he he implores that, that no one would dare think that they can come before that judgment seat that was described earlier in 2 Corinthians and say, see, Lord, can't you see that, that, that I tried my, my best? You know, uh, why should I let you in? I was, a good, I was a good person. I did good things. He tells us that when we stand before the judgment seat, all those in Christ We'll have Christ Himself speak on our behalf and say those, those wicked deeds, those things that this one who was once called an enemy, this one who was dead, I bore the penalty in my flesh. See my hands? See the holes? See my side? I bore it. It was laid on me. This is what Christ will say for the believer. What marvelous news. And I think Paul absolutely, when he writes this, has saw Isaiah 53 on his mind. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. There is no reconciliation to God without first believing that Christ has become sin in our place and that he was cut off. There's no relief in our guilt if we aren't found to be in Christ who took that guilt. We either bear it ourselves or it has been laid on Christ in our stead. Do you understand then the magnitude of what is being described? On Christ, our sin was laid. He made Him to be sin. Your sin. 
Not his. He never knew sin by his own action in life. And he never experienced exile from God or the weight of his wrath until the moment when God decided to kill his son for the sake of us. So that the cross becomes the moment, the the pinnacle of human history when the horrors of hell fell upon the Messiah who experienced it us experienced it for us the one who would drink the cup of God's wrath down to the last dregs tasting sin for what it was it was a bitter cup of suffering what a monumental moment in fact you you can see when you read the gospel account that it seems like all of nature is reeling and and quaking at the moment that Christ dies a world under a curse rends and it quakes in the moments when Jesus breathes his last breath as the the long years of that curse that has been not only on mankind but on the earth from the very beginning until this moment finally something is breaking The curse is being broken and there is Christ and the earth quakes beneath Him. Just uh, shaking that the tombs even open up. Even the foundations of the temple quake and and the curtain is torn from top to bottom. You realize now you have access and reconciliation to the living God. Oh, even as the sun goes dark. as the eyes of the sun go dark in death and forsakenness. So to this cry of suffering and exile that fell upon him as he knew our sin, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that when you turn to Psalm 22 and you read, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning doesn't have to be our cry anymore because it was the cry of the Messiah, the long-awaited, the Christ who died in our stead. And this is what it looks like for Him who knew no sin to become sin so that we see in our passage our answer is in the anguish of Christ on the cross for our sake. We see He isn't far from saving us. That question that Psalm 22 asks. He hears the words of our groaning and all of our sin imputed in the final sacrifice of Christ in our place. Now you can hire a lawyer who would stand and defend you, but you will never find a lawyer. I think this is true, Will. You'll never find a lawyer who says, guilty, Uh, I'd like judge to take the punishment for him. Christ does this willingly. Our advocate and the one who takes the punishment. So why would we still cling to our sin? Why would we turn from such a sacrifice and not be moved to be reconciled in Him? And oh, how I plead with you this very hour that you wouldn't leave as the same person, that you wouldn't leave loving your sin in any way, seeing the great cost of it. And if you've never heard this, that you would understand that here is Christ presented to you, not to make you feel, uh, um, not to make you feel like, 
oh man, I'm just the worst, right? No, to show what great love he has. Yes, you are the worst in your sin, but isn't he gracious that he says, I'll take that, I'll bear that upon myself. We will either come into the presence of Christ in the judgment throne with hands full of our sin or hands empty because Christ has already taken it from us. All that was ours became his. It really is the experience we have when we come to the table. He drank the cup, the bitter cup of wrath, and you get to drink the cup of salvation. It's not fun to think about, but you must. One day, you are all going to die. Where does that leave you this hour? Do you still bear in your flesh all of your guilt? Do you still lie beneath its crushing burden? Do you have an answer to give Christ on the final day when you shall meet Him? Will you only say, it's to Christ alone that I cling? This is the first import of the Gospel. Our sin must be taken from us. We must identify with Christ and no longer our sin. And see how Christ identifies with us in our sin. Now you must identify with Him in His life. We see in our second point, what must be given to us. It's all too common to think of the Gospel as merely our sins are forgiven in Christ. This undermines the exchange that takes place. Remember, it's a double imputation. He takes our sin and He gives us His righteousness. So that in Him, it says, we may become the righteousness of God. If we only believed that Christ wiped away our sins at the cross, then we are still left Adam just before He fell. But there was... Something much richer here. The thing that Adam could have had, had he obeyed everlasting life, the righteousness of God, Christ gives us that. He not just undoes, undoes, undoes the curse. (laughs) He, uh, he, He takes it a step further. He takes us beyond the curse. Why did God not sacrifice Jesus the moment He was born? Why did Jesus go on to live 33 years? Why did it take us this long to get to the cross? Because there is a condition of our salvation that we must be made righteous by works. Christ works. Not ours. We are saved by Christ's death but also by His obedience. Remember, He knew no sin. That is, He completely lived His life in perfect obedience to God's every command. Remember what God told uh, Adam. Obey me and live. Disobey me and die. Well, Christ fulfilled both of these. When sin was laid on Him, He bore the death for disobedience. And He also purchased life as the better Adam by His obedience. He was qualified by His life to be the spotless Lamb who bore our sins. What is the righteousness of God and how do we receive it? Paul tells us in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation 
by his blood to be received in faith. God is both just and justifier. He was just in his execution of wrath on Jesus Christ. And yet the cross also shows us he's just, he justifies by imputing to us the righteous life of Christ. What a gift. Our disobedience being dealt with, we also receive the merit of Christ's perfect obedience imputed to us remarkably is Christ's righteous life. And this is how God sees us. This is what it means to be in Christ. Our filthy rags are cast off and He he robes us in the the righteousness of Christ. The, The divine perspective is everything. For I'm sure that you wrestle with how you see yourself when God looks at those who have faith in Christ. He sees Christ. That's what it means to be in Him. He sees Christ when He looks at you believers. This this is beautiful. As beautiful as the Father who who has the Son who comes home still reeking of hogs and the the road that He's traveled in His sin. And what does He do? But He he receives Him and wraps Him in new robes and gives Him the family rig and, and, and the signet. He is united. He is reconciled to the Father that He had run away from into the far country. We are released from our guilt and filled with something else. He empties us fully of guilt, but then He fills us with the righteousness of God. And He will judge us based upon the finished work of Christ Jesus. Based upon Christ's righteousness, not our own unrighteousness. This is what Paul means by a new creation. Do you really believe that three nails is what held Christ to the cross? He who could walk on water He who could raise the dead, heal the leper, open the eyes of the blind. He who could speak to the winds and the waves. He who, Ephesians tells us, laid the foundations of the earth. Do you really think some nails uh, kept Him on the cross? No, it was a love for the people that He would bear all of their sins and He Himself would give to them the righteousness of God. Paul describes the death that is necessary and the life that is necessary. Death of sin and life of righteousness. This is the gift of God for His people. Amen? Well, that's good news. Paul says, he goes out and pleads. I plead with you to go out and tell the world. Christianity Explorers coming. Go find some people and bring them to hear the Gospel. Fill up this place on Sunday evenings and Sunday mornings, inviting them to come and hear about Christ. You are an ambassador of Christ. And that is news too good to keep to yourself. Let's pray.